0: everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or wine and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13, damn it. Your dynamic duo today is John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is Episode 142, an interview with Kate Gale. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. We're so delighted you're being here. Dr. Kate Gale is the co-founder of Red Hen Press, and has you have a new book coming out. My understanding is called "The Loneliest Girl," just released a couple weeks ago. Absolutely, yes. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Well, I've been I worked on this book for seven years. I think of it as being seven years at the bottom of the well. I, I actually once, when I was a child, was left at the bottom of a well at night. I mean. there was was dirt down there. So I was just stuck down there. And I remember the moon coming over me and being just, you know, I fell asleep, of course, at some point. I think of this last seven years working on this book as being that night at the bottom of the well. No, it was a little dark down there, but then the moon did come up and then eventually the sun came up. I was, I wanted to explore shaming as it applies to women, particularly. And as it, as it is applied by the Judaic Christian ethic and Hellenism, which are the twin pillars of Western civilization.
0: And, um, Although I gotta say, we have had a rant previously that the, those of the Jewish faith do not like Judeo-Christian unless you add Judeo-Christian Islamic. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> because well, maybe they started in the same place, but they went entirely different places and they like to say, don't blame that on us these days. Right, right.
2: Which, which is a straight to your point that it is a comment about shaming and they don't want that shame.
1: It really is. Right. But both the Bible and Greek myths are hard on women. And there's a lot of shame to be had for women. Um, sex is women's fault. Being fat is women's fault. Whatever goes wrong seems to be women's fault.
0: If you're poor, you made bad life choices, you know. Exactly. Whereas and if you're
1: rich, it's hard work, naturally. Exactly. That's what Elon Musk says. <laughs> He's worked very hard. I I wanted to explore. I wanted to just walk, walk through all of that shame and and not just get my ankles wet, but walk all the way down until I was underwater and swimming and not able to swim and really drown in it and, and really get, get wet with it and, and figure out what was this shame that we're feeling and what is it that we're living with and how could we come up the other side and what there was no other way I felt to do it without inhabiting Medusa. And, you know, Medusa is such a great framing point for this because the story of Medusa that we're all told is, you know, her head's cut off. And that then that head is used, of course, to kill off the kraken. But the rest of the story is that Medusa was a virgin. She was in the temple and she was raped. And as a punishment for rape, she was put in the cave in the island of Sistine and given the head full of
0: snakes. That's yeah. There's no, there's really no, no fairness at all in that. No.
2: And no. and she was in part raped because she was so beautiful. It is a punishment because of her beauty as I read the, the myth.
1: I let, I let Medusa have a lot of different endings. I let her rewrite her own ending and she, she got, she got a lot of different choices in my book. And because I think as women, we've got to walk out of the, narrative of shame and choose other choices for ourselves and let our daughters walk out of the narrative of shame, the narrative of shame that your body isn't quite right, that your life isn't quite right.
0: A red tent in a lot of different countries where you are unclean once a month and you must be shunned by everybody and go off to a tent lest anybody, you know, see or smell a trace of red upon you.
1: Right, right. All those reasons to be ashamed. And of course, I went through You know, in this country, many women become assaulted and then, of course, are shamed. And I walked all the way through that as well, because that's Medusa's story, too. Trying to rewrite our story into the stars, and we'll we'll see how I did. But
0: Well, there's a lot of the shame brings on something that you mentioned in passing earlier, and we're talking about doing this show, of the sheer imposter syndrome that shame can cause women. Really, the... I'm not good enough to be in this job. Am I really a professional? Am I trained? I mean, you have a doctorate, right? Do you ever have imposter syndrome? You who have achieved the highest degree in the nation and something you've piled high and deeper. Do you ever feel it?
1: Yeah, if you you talk with anyone who's worked at a big company in HR, they'll tell you that There will be men that walk in that have a BA that are completely unqualified that will be like, I can do it. And they probably can. You know, they probably could figure it out in a couple of weeks. And there'll be a woman that will come in who's pretty qualified, has already done the job, has a PhD, and will be like, I think I can do it. I'd like to apply. And the HR person is like, you could nail this. Come on. But that imposter syndrome is holding her back from owning her own power.
0: It could hold a lot of people back as that really translates well into the whole creative artistry that we talk about so often on our show of I I maintain that everybody I know is a writer, every human being that walks has a story to tell, or a song to sing or a beat to drum out or a poem that needs to come out of them and probably a lot more. How do you how do you nourish that in others? I know that you teach literature. Is that some a topic that you t- touch on? Yeah, I do. I I teach I
1: teach graduate students and I I always have you know, a few people I'm mentoring. I would say though that when it comes to my work as an editor, I don't just try to be everybody's literary champion. Previous to the time that I started this book, I did try to do that, but I don't. I, I work with my students. I work with the writers I'm working with. But I think that you have to, you try, you have to try to do what you're doing well. I think there's a tendency, if you are an editor, to just try to build literary connections for people all over the place. And I think that sometimes that doesn't work out for you as the editor. So what I try to do well, uh, I try to do what I can do well, which is edit and teach and not get too crazy, you know, because I think that you can overdo it.
0: I believe that entirely. Now, you also talk about independent publishing, for instance, you're the co-founder of Red Hen Press. Tell us a little bit about Red Hen Press. What do you publish? What do you look into? What are the, uh, what's the mission? I decided when I was 30, I had just gotten divorced,
1: I didn't have any money, I kind of announced to my little group of friends, you know, LA needs to be a literary city, LA needs to be the next Paris, I think I should build a press here in this city, and I think it would really start to transform Los Angeles into a literary city. And someone said, you know, you don't have any money, everything you own fits in one car, I really don't think you're going to be able to do this, This it's a big city. And I was like, don't be a hater, I really got this. I met this guy and he said that he would help me. He would design the books if I chose the books. He also had no money, but he was willing to sell his car. And so we had enough money to print the first couple books. And that was in 1994. And fast forward to now, we are in a space in Pasadena where I'm actually having the book launch, The Loneliest Girl. It's a big space and it has obviously a space for doing events has space for offices. We publish 25 books a year, and you're asking what kinds of books. So about two-thirds of those books are prose at this point, about a third of poetry, and they are mostly literary fiction, published novels by people like Amy Liu, Ellen Mirapol. We have a book coming up by Aka Weaver, something by uh, Nahid Rocklin. So we published a variety of different authors, but all of the books that we're publishing are what I like to think of as books that really wake you up, keep you up at night, well written, well crafted,
0: writers writing at the at their at their level of excellence. Nice. You Winnie you, and you said something, and I have to seize upon it because we have discussed it before. When you define the term literary fiction, what do you think of? So I think of a few things. One, I mean,
1: let, let's let's take let's take an author that's sort of the quintessential uh, literary fiction author, and maybe my favorite author, Toni Morrison, right? So Toni Morrison, we know that that her work is literary fiction because the bulk of it is still going to be read in a hundred years. Her stories have layers and layers of meaning, and so, in other words, like Kafka's *Metamorphosis*, they there isn't just the surface story, there's layers of story beneath that story. So to me, that's the difference between a fun read that you have on the airplane that you know when the book goes out of print, it will just simply disappear. Because there's nothing that important going on in it. And a book like you know, uh, you know, an, an author that's that's writing about something that that that's about what I consider to be truly important issues or or
0: ideas. Does that ever transport into different genres? Uh,
1: you mean as in poetry, nonfiction, fiction?
0: Oh, no, I actually mean in fiction as can a something that is science fiction also be literary? Can a fantasy book like The Lord of the Rings, can that be considered the Fiona of our tapestry? Are any of those in the category of if they stick with somebody forever, that kind of fits like under the definition?
1: So interestingly, Lord of the Rings was, besides the fact that that Led Zeppelin was, uh, the, the guys that, that were in Led Zeppelin were, were obsessed with it, and, and a lot of people were obsessed with it before Peter Jackson was, it wasn't really considered literature, I don't think. As someone, you know, with a PhD in literature and And as someone who studied enough science fiction and fantasy, I really think that the turning point for for books like Lord of the Rings and sci-fi fantasy was Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin's left hand of darkness and and Ray Bradbury to a certain extent. Something Wicked This Way Comes had come out and, and The Martian Chronicles, but Ursula Le Guin, I feel like, was the turning point. And then fantasy and science fiction started being taught in universities and I mean, when, you know, when I was studying my PhD, I read Left Hand of Darkness again. I mean, I've, I had read it, but Philip K. Dick is taught in universities now. I mean, Philip K. Dick is a complete classic. So I would agree with you on Lord of the Rings at this point. I, I, I mean, there's no doubt that that's a classic and that that many other books are built on that, as, as well as George MacDonald in, in my book. But I think that, I, I do think that in terms of what, broke the ice. I, I put a lot of credit b- b- with, with, uh, with Ursula Le Guin, who's, of course, her father was an anthropologist. She, she understood how to put layers of meaning in, in a book. And, and obviously, so had other authors before her, but it's just that she, she turned that corner for, for literature, I think.
0: I love that you brought up uh, Led Zeppelin and their their dedication to I think the Four Symbols album is is all things about Lord of the Rings. But that brings up one of my favorite topics that you had mentioned a love as well of the art song. I mean, I am a child who grew up in the '70s and '80s, and I watched whole Rush's Twenty One Twelve album being a whole story, almost an opera. And then you had Tommy. You have art song has become just as much developed as You get musicals, which Laura Franco's talked about earlier and art songs and and all of the pieces that is, these are the pieces to opera. And I saw that you had written, you had been a librettist for a couple. Tell us about how you view the art song as being a gateway to opera. Of all the arts, opera is is
1: of course, one of the most expensive. And so getting an opera to happen is you know, always seems painfully difficult. And as someone who's written quite a few librettos that haven't happened yet but are sort of in a slow process, I feel like uh, it's it's always difficult, partly because of the the finances. i I'm working right now with a composer, and he is he's from Cuba. And he's very committed to this project that we're working on, and it's about Che Guevara. And it tells both stories, both sides of Che Guevara's life. And this, this guy is an amazing composer, and I really want to get this produced. And you'd think, especially right now, that we would just like, boom, we'd be getting this thing done. But it's just, it's expensive. Somebody, somebody has to commit to raising like a couple million dollars for this to happen, right? But in the meantime, he's getting little pieces of it produced. And those pieces, it, first of all, can stand alone, but also might lead to the whole opera being produced, which is what happened with Rio de Sangre. There was pieces of Rio de Sangre that have been produced and, and sung at the LA Master Chorale. And that's what led to the whole opera being done. And with The Loneliest Girl, one of, this, one of the poems was set to music by Mark Abel and a sung by Gila Plitman and is available on YouTube. And that art song, I think, gets more, c- carries more weight than, than most other parts of this book have so far. And it's just interesting to me because it's like I had some of the poems published, I had done readings, but the intersection between poetry and music is really exquisite and obviously has been for millennia. And so I, I think it's interesting that it's coming back. And I think part of it is that people love hearing poetry sung. And, and also though, it's just a much easier kind of a, an art form to put on, you know, if you, if you have a composer that falls in love with the poetry, you know, you can come up with something very exquisite and then put it on pretty, pretty uh, inexpensively. I would say if you were naming, if you asked me to name one of my favorite art experiences and, you know, Beethoven's Ninth. And, you know, I I was naming a lot of different books and theater experiences and just had to just think and think and think. Morton Lloydson's Sure on This Shining Night would be in my top five. I've heard him play the piano and heard someone sing that Sure on This Shining Night. And as a person who never, never cries in public ever. I have been brought very close to tears by Sure on This Shining Night. Mm. It's, it's amazing, it's just amazing. And it's, it's simply this, this crazy poem, but something about it set to song, set to music, tears your heart out.
0: I had an appreciation similarly for, I, I never was a big rap music fan. And then I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton And I, I'm sorry, shoot me out there if you like, I didn't love all of it, but some of it was so perfect and compelling that it stays with you. And suddenly I found it's like, okay, now I get the rhythm. And since then he did, he's been working with Disney. So I love Moana and I love, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, and all the things made of it. But the rhythms and the ideas that it seems like the art song kind of combines with this new capability. And maybe opera could make a comeback in a common way, because opera at one time seemed very classist in America. I mean, in Italy, everybody goes, you take your kids, you take things you talk all the way through, oh, it's Tosca. But in America, it has a perception of being a purview of very rich people as opposed to how it can be approachable for anybody.
1: I like to think in L.A. it's the only thing people still dress up
0: for in Los Angeles. (laughs) I like to think people are still dressing up. I get sad here in San Jose that uh, girls dress up, but boys wear jeans and hoodies. Sorry, boys. Just doesn't
2: look as good. You don't go to all the right places, but that's a, a side debate. Let's go back to art song and art. And I'd like you to discuss, there are a number of ways to look at for want of a better term, the permission of the creative space, where if you are frankly an older white guy with a Ivy League degree, you have full permission to do whatever you want. And you talked about looking not at race or gender exclusively, but looking at class distinctions. Could you expand on that here?
1: Yeah, so I think about this a lot when I'm thinking about writing. When I think about who works in publishing, class comes to me a lot, and maybe that's because I've got none. <laughs> when I was a college student, I lived in and out of my car. I have been homeless. I'm not homeless now, but I'm very pleased to say I live in a house. But my first thing when I first moved to California to go to graduate school, I drove. I I drove across from Arizona, and I went to Santa Monica and looked at the beach and uh, wasn't, there weren't 150,000 homeless people in California then, maybe there were only a hundred. You live in San Jose, so you know. But I remember seeing all those homeless people and thinking, if I end up homeless, I can, I'll live here, right here on the beach. I hadn't been homeless for a little while, but I had certainly slept in my car plenty um, by that time. Whenever, uh, you know, like I was meeting with someone for drinks uh, a few weeks ago, and she said very airily, I could live anywhere in the world. And I thought immediately, no one says that unless they're rich. Because I mean, what I would say is, I guess if I were dropped anywhere in the world, I could figure things out. And I would quickly start scrambling around and getting a job so that I could... So I could live indoors, you know, but I wouldn't just say I could live anywhere in the world because, yeah, if you have a big bank account, you can live anywhere in the world. I think a lot about this because I think that it affects the books people read and how they view the world. So when I was in college, I was obsessed with Ray Carver. Ray Carver felt like he was writing about my life and the life I thought I was going to live in the future, too. I I pictured myself in cheap hotels, pouring gin over my belly and everything. But I think that like what you think your possibilities and limitations are have to do a lot with class. I've been reading this article and I've given it to my students to read and it's about who got hired at at Vogue. And it's, it's about Anna Wintour and her only hiring people. And it's not only that she only hired people that were white that's of course, but they were only white and thin and from Ivy League families and rich. And I thought that's quite a list because that excludes so many of us, right?
0: There was a whole argument once that being thin itself was its own kind of classist thing. For instance, what is 99 cents at McDonald's? It's not the salad in case anybody wondered. You can get fries, you can get a burger, you can get things that are fattening. But if you want to buy organic or buy from, you know, vegetables are actually can end up being more expensive. Right,
1: right. I mean, I have a couple friends that are always telling me you should buy everything organic. And even now, I cannot afford to buy everything organic. I have four jobs, you know, I can't, I can't afford to buy everything organic. So I think that like, when I was in college also, a lot of people were reading Anne Beatty. I remember Anne Beatty. And Anne Beatty was always talking about, there was always sort of this dropping of the Chanel this and this and that. And I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't read it at all. First of all, I didn't have any, I didn't I didn't understand it because I didn't know, like, is this a very expensive purse, a medium expensive purse? Like, I, I didn't know what the stuff was. The Louis Vuitton, something or other. And even now... I guess Louis Vuitton, is is it very expensive? Is it medium expensive? Like, I don't know. Can you get one at Target? Not sure, pretty sure no. Basically, so there's all this name dropping that she did, which just didn't make sense to me. And so I think one of the things with publishing is that if to work in New York publishing, your parents are gonna need to support you for a, a number of years, that means you have to have access to generational wealth. And that's part of the problem that that doesn't get talked about, about why so many people in publishing are white, because it doesn't mean that there isn't generational wealth among other groups. Of course, there are plenty of uh, African-Americans sending their kids to the historically black colleges who have had money for many generations. But the African-Americans might not want to support their kids for five years just so they can work at Random House. They might prefer for their kid to be in business, be a doctor, be a lawyer, do something more lucrative than making 40,000 a year at Random House. Whereas if you had generational wealth, the money you're making at Random House as the woman in the family might not be as important.
0: It it creates a lot of, especially for women and especially for non-white women, there's an ocean of anger. We've we've talked to Ashanti and a few of other really good poets that have a lot of that emotion that has gone unheard in publishing. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right.
1: Mm-hmm. So with Red Hen, from the very beginning when we, obviously in the very beginning, my husband and I did all the work. So by the way, we, we were not married when we first met. We were friends. And then We we fought a lot about the press and got married so we could fight more easily. We'd been running the press for about seven or eight years. We hired one part-time person. And finally, we now have a staff of 10 of us all together, including ourselves. So there's eight staff besides us. And as soon as we started hiring staff, we were like, we're in Los Angeles. We want the staff to be very much a mirror of the city that we're living in. (laughs) Well, let's start with, I think the oldest person at the... the press, besides us, might be 32, so a lot of millennials, and they, they have brilliant ideas and are great at tech. And I think of the staff, the, the eight staff that we have, I think there's one person who identifies as white and cisgendered, so quite a diverse group um, working at the, at the press. It's, it's fantastic because they have such great ideas. They're energetic full of great ideas, willing to work hard, and it's exciting
0: to be at the
1: office with them.
0: Would you like to read a piece from your book, The Loneliest Girl, on our show? Okay, I will read you the
1: one that Gila Plitman reads so that if you get excited about it, you can look it up on YouTube later.
0: Yay, Um, we'll put the link out, everybody. It's called Those Who Loved Medusa.
1: You, Poseidon, came to me in the temple I laughed at suitors, men in love. You said I was a thing of beauty, a cup for love. You smashed the cup, you poured the wine. In Athena's temple, you raped me on the floor. My eyes met Athena's, she found me guilty. After the rape, I gathered myself in blood. Athena whispered, I cursed you. Athena said you wore red, your skirts rustled, you smiled, your hair will rustle. Your face will be unforgettable. Your silky hair will be snakes, your voice a hiss. You are creature. Carry this story forward. Rape is the fault of the victim. Carry this story forward. The female turns the key, opens the door. You raped me in the temple. I am that thing. Hold my head aloft. Laugh for generations. Don't stop laughing until Medusa is synonymous with death. Turn me into that thing you fear. Make me monster. Make me creature you fear in the dark. You fear the thing in the dark, wet, ripe, swollen, waiting for pleasure, that thing demanding. Fear the woman with her own snakes. Men kept visiting me in the cave on the island of Sistine. Men kept visiting the cave. It isn't true, they all died. Imagine the men who entered the cave, found love in the dark. Imagine the men who braved the forest, found my lips. Imagine the man who found
0: my lips. I love it. <laughs> That's wonderful. And that is out right now as of February 15th, 2022, correct? Yes. Wonderful. We will put links to your book and the other interesting things that we've mentioned on our website, which is com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Kate, this has been fabulous having you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schwein, and our sound engineer and backup sound engineer and web spiders are Dave Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Maid, Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg at manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Arm Street, a Ukrainian arms dealer that's everything from medieval clothing and armor, and you should all immediately go out there and buy gift certificates and support Ukraine. Slava, Ukraine. We love you guys. And hey, thanks for listening.